back in the last century, late 1990s, before I was a pastor. I was in education all the way back in the last century, by the way. I was in education, and uh, specifically, I was a science teacher. And my favorite subject to teach was chemistry. Some groaning right now, I'm sure. That's because you didn't have a high school chemistry teacher like me. But I had a great high school chemistry teacher, and it kind of came naturally to me. And so uh, I did a minor in chemistry and then uh, started teaching. Um, And uh, one of the classes I regularly taught uh, was chemistry. And so I've had a long-time interest in that. And so uh, this week, as I was preparing for the message, um, I got to thinking about dynamite. And it'll become apparent why uh, I was thinking about dynamite. Uh, And so I did a little research here about uh, the invention of Dynamite, and I found that um, it began in 1846 uh, when an Italian chemist by the name of Ascanio Sobrero uh, accidentally discovered nitroglycerin. Uh, he was attempting to create a safe explosive, uh, and so what he did is he took a mixture of glycerol, nitric acid, and sulfuric acid, uh, and he put just a drop of it in a test tube and then began to heat it up. However, when he heated it up, it suddenly exploded, sending uh, glass shards into his face and hands, uh, scarring him forever. Now, uh, Sobrero was apparently a really good guy, and so seeing the destructive nature of nitroglycerin, um, he destroyed his work, he destroyed his notes, he hid his discovery, wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, However, as you can imagine, words soon leaked out and other scientists began to produce nitroglycerin uh, with some devastating results. Uh, For example, in 1866 in San Francisco, uh, a whole pallet of nitroglycerin uh, exploded, killing 15 people. Uh, This led California to ban nitroglycerin because that's what California does all the time, right? Bans things. (laughs) That was until just a year later, A scientist by the name of Alfred Nobel, he of the Nobel Prize, figured out how to stabilize nitroglycerin in a substance that he named dynamite. Dynamite is the substance that contains the explosive power of nitroglycerin. And today in Romans 1, we're going to see how the gospel is dynamite, how it contains the explosive power of God an explosive power that, unlike nitroglycerin, is constructive rather than destructive. If I can say it this way, the passage that we're going to study this morning has the potential to blow up your life, to blow up your life in a way where you will be changed in a really, really good way forever. The gospel is the explosive power of God that transforms lives. And I'm praying and hoping that that very thing is gonna happen really in all of us today. And so to that end, let's find our way to Romans chapter one. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, If you have a Romans journal, it's on page 12. I hope you have one of those uh, out and we'll follow along in that as well. And so uh, as you are getting there, I'm gonna go ahead and read the passage. Uh, Follow along with me as I do so. Paul writes this first. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you 
some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a moment here, just quiet our hearts, and we're gonna pray uh, before the Lord that the explosive nature of, of this passage, which God has literally used to transform the world over and over again, is gonna do the same in us here today. So that only happens, like I said last week, as the Holy Spirit does it, but the Holy Spirit responds as we pray. So I just wanna encourage you just to bow your heads with me, just to quiet your spirit here, and as we enter into this marvelous passage, just to ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart today, all right? And so um, just take a few seconds here, and then I will lead us in a short prayer. Holy Spirit, we thank you that uh, you're here today. Thank you that you go with us wherever we go. There's no place that, that we go that you aren't there. We also know that um, you are the one who makes the word of God effective in our lives. And so I pray for some people today that it will become effective for the very first time and that they will experience the power of salvation your mighty power through your gospel. I pray for those of us who that is already true, for whom that is already true, I pray that today we will come to a fuller and deeper understanding of the gospel and that will change our lives in a way that we never believe possible. That you will show us how much you love us, how much you um, have in store for us, and how wonderful that is. Give me um, power as I preach. May my words be your words. And may this all be for your glory and our good. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So there are really two parts uh, to our passage today. In the first part, Paul explains why he's writing this letter. And in the second, he gives the theme of the letter. We're going to spend a majority of our time on that second part because it is, of course, the theme but we're also going to spend a significant amount of time in the first part because there are lots of important things here. So let's begin by talking about why Paul wrote Romans in the first place. In verses eight through 15, Paul gives two reasons why he's writing the church at Rome. He wants them to know two things. First, he wants them to know that he's thankful for them. In verse eight, he says that the Romans' faith is being proclaimed all over the world, and he wants them to know that he's very grateful this is the case. Harmony, I want you to know this morning that I feel the exact same way about you. I am incredibly grateful that, that today as we are here worshiping, your faith is being proclaimed all around the world. 
And this is not hyperbole at all. Today, as we worship here, there are people in places like Lebanon and Guatemala and Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu and other places, places that I can't even mention because of security concerns that are hearing about your faith. They are hearing about the gospel through you. That's pretty encouraging, right? And then second, Paul wants the Romans to know that he's longing to visit them. The language that Paul uses in verses nine through 13 makes it clear that he has a strong desire to be with him. Paul desperately wants to spend some time with these Christians and for two reasons, both of which have significant application for us. Number one, Paul wants to experience mutual ministry. Look at verses 12 or 11 and 12 again. He says this, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Consider the amazing nature of what Paul is saying here. Paul is an apostle and yet he wants the Romans to minister to him. Yes, he wants to encourage them, but he, he wants to go to them so that they can encourage him too. Let me tell you what this means. It means that we all have a role to play in the church. I realize that you might think that you're, you're not needed here, that, that, that there, there isn't any way that you can serve and be involved, and it doesn't matter if you are involved or not, and I'm just telling you, that is not the case you have a unique role to play in Harmony Bible Church, and if you don't play that role, we're missing out on something that we need, every single one of you. Listen, if Paul needed Christians to minister to him, then you can bet that we need you to minister to us. All of us do that. So I will also add here that ministering to others is part of the obedience that comes from faith. Our faith in Jesus should produce the obedience to ministering to others And so if you aren't giving yourself to mutual ministry, I I really want to urge you to start doing so today. Begin serving in the ministry. Join a community group. Come early, stay late, and look for people that you can encourage, that you can pray for, that you can just fellowship with. We're in this together, and every single person in the church is needed and necessary. Number two, verse 13 tells us that Paul wants to visit Rome in order to reap a harvest in and through the Romans. Now, when we piece this together with what Paul writes in chapter 15, we get this picture. Paul wants to go to Rome so that he can fulfill the Great Commission. Now, you remember from a few weeks ago, the Great Commission is to make disciples. And the way that we make disciples is through evangelism and education. So Paul says, hey, I wanna come to Rome so that I can educate you more fully in the gospel. And then in, through, and with you, I wanna go and evangelize people, especially those who haven't heard. In chapter 15, Paul says, hey, I wanna come to you, Romans, because I wanna use you as a beachhead to launch into the unreached areas of Spain. Spain was a major unreached area in this this time. And Paul says, hey, I wanna go there. So I'm gonna come to you. We're gonna spend some time together. And then you're gonna be the base from which I'm going to go and reach the unreached people in Spain. You know what this means? It means that in its essence, Romans is a missionary letter. One of Paul's major purposes in writing this letter is to see the gospel get to those who haven't heard. But that said, 
we really need to see how Paul intends to reap this harvest in and through the Romans. Look at verse 15 again. Notice what he says there. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, just think about this for a second, friends. Uh, these people that he's writing to were Christians, and yet he says, hey, I'm eager to come and to preach the gospel to you. You know what that means for us? It means that we never get to the place in our Christian lives where we don't need more of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not only what brings salvation, it's also what helps us to grow up into our salvation. And so the, the gospel is a well from which we can continually um, get water, so we continually get what we need. It never, we never get to the bottom of the gospel well. Now then, here's the big question, though, that we need to answer. Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel in Rome, like really, really eager. And I realize I just said that he wants to reap a harvest in and through the Romans, but there's way more to it than that, especially in light of the fact that Rome was a very dangerous place to preach the gospel. Rome, of course, was the capital of the Roman Empire, and so it was the place where Caesar lived. Caesar, who threatened um, his subjects with a penalty of death if they worshiped any other person as Lord except for himself. And of course, the gospel says that there's only one Lord, and that's Jesus. And so, so Paul says, hey, I'm going to go to Rome, to the place where this guy who controls the entire world and literally kills people for not worshiping his Lord, and I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell everybody that somebody else is Lord. Paul, in, in going to Rome, is literally putting his life on, on the line. So, so many of you have seen the movie Gladiator, right? Well, um, Paul was being threatened with what happened in that Colosseum, okay? So, so, you know, we've got the gladiators and the worries and all that kind of stuff. That's not the way it went most of the time because most of the time they threw Christians into that Colosseum and they didn't give them any weapons and they didn't have the lions, the tigers chained, all right? And they just were, were annihilated, were killed. And so that's what is facing Paul. And yet he says, I don't care about that. I'm eager to go there and preach the gospel and we need to ask why. We need to ask why, and our passage gives us two reasons. Two reasons, and these are really the meat of our passage, all right? Paul's eager to preach in Rome because, first of all, he has an obligation to fulfill. Verse 14 says this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Greeks and barbarians are referred to the civilized and the uncivilized, and the wise and the foolish refer to the intellectual and the unintellectual. Uh, I'll let you choose which categories you fall into, seeing as here, uh, we're here in Southeast Iowa, it could go either way, okay? I'll let you choose. Now, by the way, if you think I'm giving a hard time, just remember, I've told you before, my family comes from West Virginia, okay? So we're, we're clearly in the uh, uncivilized and unintellectual categories, all right? I'll let you choose what it is for you. But regardless, what Paul's saying here is that he has an obligation to preach the gospel to everyone everywhere. Now, there are two ways to think of an obligation, and I'll illustrate them in this way. If I come up to you after the service and say, hey, um, there's a new family that I want to take out to lunch today. They're, they're visiting, and I want to just get to know them, and uh, I've forgotten my wallet, all right? And so can you give me 100 bucks Okay, you spot me $100 so that I can take them out to lunch. And if you do so, and you're kind and generous, then I will owe you $100. I'll have an obligation of $100 to you. 
On the other hand, if you come up to me after the service and you say, hey, Chris, here's $100 that I want to go to the benevolence fund. And if I receive that $100, which I might not, I might say, go give it to Tim Sobota or something like that, all right? But if I were to take it, then I would owe the benevolence fund $100. You would have given it to me, but my obligation isn't to you. My obligation is to make sure that it gets to the benevolent fund. And it's in this second sense that's applicable here. God has shared the gospel with Paul so that Paul will share it with others. Paul has an obligation to give to others what God has given to him. This morning, we need to realize that what's true for Paul is also true for us. We too have an obligation to share the gospel. We owe it to people to share the good news that God has graciously shared with us. This is particularly true regarding those who have never heard the gospel. I wanna press this on all of you. If you have received the gospel, if you are a believer, you have an obligation to get the gospel to those who need to hear it, especially those who have never heard. Consider this. If you were given a million dollar check made out to somebody else, and you were given it so that you would pass it along to them, you would feel a heavy responsibility to make sure that you fulfill that obligation, right? Some of you are saying, no, I feel a real obligation to make sure it made its way into my bank account some way. But in all seriousness, that, that would be a, a heavy obligation, a heavy responsibility. And I wanna say to you, how much of a heavier responsibility do you have to make sure that people who are currently on their way to hell, they're they're lost and dying and they're on their way to hell, get the gospel that they need. I'll use another illustration. Suppose you heard somebody who had discovered a cure for cancer, like every type of cancer, and yet they had decided to keep that cure to themselves. They were just gonna use it for themselves so that they can make sure that any, if they were to get any type of cancer, they could be cured. How would you feel about that? You would probably feel that it was wrong, right? That it was unjust, that it was selfish. And friends, we've gotta get this this morning. We've gotta get this. We have the cure to the eternal cancer of sin and death. We have the cure that can save people eternally. So, so to this morning, you know, we, we've been praying for, for Turkey and we're praying for Syria, right? We're praying for those, those people who've been through so, so, through so much pain and so many people who, who passed away. And we've got to realize that, that most maybe all of those people who passed away this week, they're in hell right now. And, and this happens every single day, every single really moment of every single day day, many of these people never, ever hearing the name of Jesus even one single time. And we've got to understand that we have an obligation to get the gospel to them, to everyone, everywhere. Now, that's the kind of the negative motivation. Let me give you the positive motivation, because if if you get what we're going to talk about in the rest of this message, okay, it will change your whole attitude to sharing the gospel to evangelism. It's the second reason Paul's eager to preach the gospel to the Romans. When the gospel is proclaimed, its explosive power changes life. 
When the gospel is proclaimed, its explosive power changes lives. Look again at verses 16 through 17, where Paul gives the theme of Romans. He says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I don't know if you have your attention or not, but the rest of the message, you're, you're really going to need to lean in with me because it's gonna require some intense concentration, all right? There is so much in these two verses, and, and we're, we're gonna outline them kind of with four main phrases, all right? There are four main phrases, each beginning with the word for, and these phrases, uh, each of them illuminates and supports the one before. So, It goes like this. Here are the four phrases. Number one, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Number two, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Number three, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And number four, as or for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So so let's walk through these four phrases. Phrase number one, Paul is eager to preach the gospel for or because He's not ashamed of it. Side note, I I can't uh, read this phrase without thinking of the Newsboys. That's because the title track from their fourth studio album was, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to let you know I want this light in me to show. I'm not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. We're gonna sing that following up from the sermon here today, all right? I'm kidding, we're not actually gonna do that. But if you want, just get a laugh. Um, You can go and you can search for the original uh, music video from that. And I will tell you, I am ashamed to see what we were wearing back in 1992. (laughs) But this song comes directly from verse 16. But let's talk about why Paul might have been ashamed of the gospel and why we might be ashamed of it too. We can summarize all the reasons. There are a number of them. We can summarize them all with the word offensive. In fact, the Greek word ashamed can also be translated offended. Why is the gospel offensive? Well, it's offensive because it tells us that we aren't inherently good and there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves good. The gospel is offensive because it tells us that we're sinners who can't save ourselves. The gospel is offensive because it tells us that we are so evil and wicked that the only thing that could save us was the murder and torture of the Son of God. In a word, the gospel is not just offensive, it's humiliating. You see, the gospel is good news, for sure, but it also contains the bad news about our condition, and this bad news is offensive to human pride. And can I just say this? If you've never been offended by the gospel, you've not truly understood it. You've not truly understood what the gospel says about you. So the gospel is humiliating, and because it's humiliating, we can be embarrassed by it, and we can hesitate to share it with others, being worried it's going to offend them. However, you'll note that's not the way it was For the Apostle Paul, he wasn't embarrassed or worried about sharing the gospel. Instead, he had complete confidence in it. In fact, that's the way, the positive way that you can translate this first phrase. Paul's saying he has confidence in the gospel. And why does he have confidence in the gospel? Well, because of what the second phrase says. For the gospel 
is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's a lot to talk about with this phrase. And I'll start out by pointing that the Greek word for power is dunamis. Dunamis, and it's spelled this way. Follow along. D-Y-N-A-M-I-S. Now, what English word does that sound like? D-Y-N-A-M-I-S. It's our word dynamite. That's where we get the word dynamite from, the Greek word dunamis. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the gospel is dynamite. It's dynamite because it releases the power of God in everyone who believes it. The power of God that Paul says results in salvation. So so think about the power of God. God is omnipotent, omnipotent. He has all power. What Paul is saying, when someone believes the gospel, God's omnipotent power is released in their lives and they are saved. Now let's talk about salvation because it's a key term in the Bible and it's also a key term in Romans. And its meaning is much richer than we might realize. We, uh, it seems to me, often think of salvation simply in regard to not going to hell and getting to go to heaven. But there's much, much more to salvation than that. It includes those things, but there's much, much more to it than that. The basic meaning of the word salvation is to rescue from danger and to restore to a former state of safety and re- well-being. So maybe in your journal, write down salvation, then next to it, write rescue and restoration. So so think about it this way. Let me say it again, all right? To be saved means to be rescued from danger and restored to a former state of safety and well-being. The gospel, therefore, is the power of God that rescues us from the danger we're in, the danger of sin and death, and restores us to our former state of safety and well-being. The former state of being right with God in a relationship that will ultimately end in heaven. Now, uh, when I say heaven, I've told you this so many times before, but I feel like I need to keep saying it. When we're talking about heaven, we're not talking about some place up in the sky where we float on clouds, where robes have wings, a halo, and shoot Nerf guns at one another. Okay? That's not heaven. The heaven that we are going to end up in is a new, recreated, perfect earth where we will experience perfect relationships with God, with one another, with ourselves, and with creation forever. Sounds a lot better, doesn't it? So so that's what we're being saved to. We're, We're not there yet, okay? We're not there yet, but that's where salvation is headed. So we're rescued from this danger of sin and death. And that, that is a danger we're all born into. When we're born, we're in, on the way, on our path to an eternity of conscious torment in hell, separated from God forever. And through salvation, we are rescued from that danger and we're restored to the place that we were originally created for. The Garden of Eden, what Adam and Eve experienced before sin entered. And it is the gospel, the gospel that does this. When we believe the gospel, it's the power that comes into our lives and rescues and restores us. Now, with that said, you think we're done with this verse? We're not even like halfway done, okay? With that said, note that the gospel is both inclusive and Exclusive. We might say it's inclusively exclusive. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's for the Jew and for the Greek, meaning it's for everybody. But while the gospel is for everybody, it's only effective in those who believe and those who have faith in Jesus. Everyone can be saved, but it's only those who have faith in Jesus who actually are. We've got to get this, all right? The gospel is for everyone. Everyone can be saved, but not everyone will be saved. It's only those who place their faith in Jesus. Let's talk a little bit more about faith, since it's another key biblical term, especially in Romans. And um, in verse 16, Paul uses the word believe, and in verse 17, he uses the word faith. Um, and there's a slight nuance there, but for, for our, really our purposes uh, this morning, they, they really refer to the same thing. So here's what faith means. Faith means believing to the extent of complete trust and reliance. Believing to the extent of complete trust and reliance. Now, I've used this example many times before. Since I don't have a better one, I'm gonna use it again here today to illustrate faith. How do I show that I have faith in this stool? I show that I have faith in the stool by sitting back and saying, you know what, I, I think that stool can hold me up. Looks like a pretty good stool, looks like it's sturdy. And I really believe, okay, I really believe that it can hold me up. Now, that might be part of it. Sure, I'm expressing, I'm saying it, but that's simply a mental affirmation. I'm just saying, hey, I, that's, that's what I think, that, that's what I believe. If I'm gonna show that I actually have faith in this stool, what do I have to do? Tell me out. I have to, to sit on it. And I have to sit on it and I have to put my entire weight on it. I have to put both cheeks on it, okay? So it's not like one cheek on and one cheek off. And the reason I say this is because this is how some people uh, relate to Jesus. They, they kind of trust him, but then they don't trust him. They're trusting in him, but they're trusting in themselves. That's not the faith that saves. The faith that saves, think of it this way, the faith that saves is a faith that surrenders the entirety of your life to giving all of you to all of you, trusting him for everything. We say it this way, that our only hope in life and death is Jesus. I'm not hoping, I'm not trusting in anything else. Somebody's clapping, y'all ought to be clapping, okay? All right, so, not for me, okay, but for the truth. So, everybody can be saved, but it's only those people who stop trusting in everything else and fully trust in Jesus who actually are saved. But here's the wonderful thing. When we stop trusting in everything else, everything else that, that cannot save us, and we surrender ourselves fully to Jesus, the power of God literally comes into our lives. And we are rescued from sin and death forever, right? They no longer have a hold on us. And we are restored to relationship with God, a relationship that will ultimately end up in that new heaven and that new earth. So let me give you two application points here, uh, and then we'll move on to verse 17. Here are the two application points, but they are huge. The first one is, this should give us great confidence in sharing the gospel. Why should it give us great confidence in uh, sharing the gospel? Because all that we need to do in order to see people saved is we simply need to proclaim this simple gospel message that if people will believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for their sins and rose again, their lives will be transformed forever. 
And so can I just encourage you here? It's not about how well you present the gospel. It's not about whether or not you kind of fumble over, stumble over the words. It's not about if you get everything absolutely right. Ultimately, what we need to do, our responsibility is simply to throw out the seed. But here's what you can know. If you will throw out the seed, people will be saved. Not not everybody. Some people will, will reject it. But that's okay, right? Because some people will receive it and believe and they will be changed forever. And can I just tell you, this happens on a regular basis in and, in and through our church. It happened last Sunday. Somebody wrote on um, uh, the prayer sheet, I profess trust in Jesus, right? And it happens maybe not week in and week out, although I don't know everything that happens, so probably week in and week out. But it happens on a regular basis and you have people in your life who need to hear the gospel. So start sharing the gospel because it's not about your power, it's about his. And he has omnipotent power and when the gospel is proclaimed, that word changes life. Can I just say, this, this, this truth is the whole basis for, for, for my ministry and for, for the ministry of Harmony Bible Church. We just believe in the power of the word of God and the power of the gospel. But then second, hopefully um, you're getting this, there, there's some of you who are listening today who have never surrendered your life to Jesus. And so I wanna give you the bad news and the good news. The bad news is, is right now, your future looks very, very grim. Very, very grim. And you can ignore it. Some of you have been ignoring it for your entire life. You've been medicating against it. You've been pretending like it's not happening. But there is coming a day where you're gonna stand before God in judgment unless you trust that 2,000 years ago, Jesus took that judgment for you, which he did. But you have to believe And if you will believe today, your life will be changed forever. You're going to live forever. The question is, where and how are you gonna live forever? I just wanna encourage, I just wanna invite you. Today can be your day of salvation. And so place your faith in Jesus today. Now, there's a whole lot there, right? But there's still more because we, we need to go on to verse 17 and we need to understand how the power of salvation actually saves us. How the gospel is the power of salvation that makes us right with God. And so let's move on to this third phrase. Notice what the third phrase says, verse 17. Uh, For in it, it being the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Last week I explained that the word righteousness means to be in a right relationship with. Through the gospel, God rescues and restores us by making us what he is, righteous, so that we're restored to a right relationship with him. It's a righteousness of or from God. So it's a righteousness that God gives us through the gospel. I know you might be, you know, your head's swimming a little bit here, but but really, you really, really need to understand this. I'm gonna do my best to explain it to you, all right? In order for us to be saved, we have to be righteous in God's sight. Our sin makes us unrighteous, we're unright. And what God does through the gospel is he gives us the righteousness we need to be in a right relationship with him. And I want you to know, once again, all right, that how faith is key in this. Notice what it says, from faith for faith. Now, that phrase is confusing, right? Let's just be honest, from faith for faith, what does it mean? Well, if you look in the margin of your Bible, there's a note that says beginning and ending in faith. And I think that's really helpful to understand what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that this righteousness from God, i.e. salvation, 
comes through faith alone, beginning and ending in faith. There's nothing else but faith that gives us the righteousness of God. So it's not, again, it's not faith plus obedience. It's not faith plus goodness. It's not faith plus anything. Okay, if I can go back to this, okay? It's faith and obedience is like this. It's like I'm, I'm kind of trusting Jesus, but I'm also trusting in my ability to, to obey because if I obey, that's what will save me. Or my goodness, if I'm good enough, that will save me. Or how successful I am. And a lot of people, that's what we're doing a lot of times is that we're trusting in something that we do. And the faith that saves is a faith is not trusting in anything else other than Jesus. It begins and it ends in faith. Phrase number four serves to support this point. The righteous shall live by faith is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Paul uses this quote to emphasize that salvation, again, being right with God, doesn't come by works, but rather by faith. And in quoting the Old Testament, Paul's showing us that this is the way that salvation has always worked. It's always come through faith and faith alone. How are people saved in the Old Testament? Through faith alone. How are people saved in the New Testament? Through faith alone. How are people saved today? Through faith alone. Through faith alone. Let me make sure you're getting the significance of what Paul is saying here. He's saying we, we don't earn our salvation. Instead, it's a free gift God gives us, one we receive simply through faith in Jesus. By the way, one of the wonderful truths that goes along this, because we are saved uh, by grace through faith, and it's a gift of God, that means that we can't lose our salvation because we didn't earn it in the first place he gave it to us. And what God gives, he never takes away. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Amen. Now, here's why this is dynamite. I wanna to talk to you about why this is dynamite. And there are lots of reasons why this is dynamite. I'm just gonna give you four. Four all coming from Romans. So lean in with me here one, one last time today. The gospel is dynamite because it gives us peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, therefore being justified, that word justified means being declared righteous. So being declared righteous, how? By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, then whether or not you feel like it, you have peace with God and you will have peace with God forever. To put it in the vernacular of the day, you and God are good and you and God will be good eternally. Can I just encourage you here? Um, this is, we talk about preaching the gospel all the time. I realize that you might not feel like you're at peace with God this morning, but this is the, really the, the fight of the Christian life is to preach the gospel to yourself so that what you feel like becomes in line with reality. So what you feel and what is real, they become one. Y'all with me here? So, so a lot of times we feel like we're not at peace with God, but the reality is that we've had faith in Jesus alone. We are good with him. How do we get our feelings in line with reality? We do so by preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again. Second, the gospel is dynamite. Let's fly up here again. All right. Second, the gospel is dynamite because it gives us new life. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The gospel blows up our old life and gives us a new life in its place. 
a new life that is filled with the power of God. When we believe the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he's living inside us, the very power of God. And the Holy Spirit comes in and he begins to change us. He begins to transform us so that our life reflects the fact that we have been made new. And Paul's gonna have a whole lot to say about that when we get to Romans 7 and 8. Third, the gospel is dynamite because it gives us freedom from condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the gospel, we're no longer facing God's judgment, and that means we can stop judging and condemning ourselves. Can I just say this to you? Um, If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can, you should, you need to stop judging and condemning and beating yourself up for what you have and haven't done. Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, and so there is no need for you to exact payment from yourself. And that's true of what you've done in the past. It's true of what you're currently doing. It's what you're doing, gonna do in the future. He paid it all. It, it was finished. So let it be finished. Let it be finished. This is why you gotta preach the gospel to yourself again, over and over and over. Can I say this also? Um, I know I'm talking really fast. Okay, I hope you're getting this. You can listen to it again this week. And we've got a new episode of our podcast that's gonna drop uh, probably on Wednesday. We talk a lot more about this. I really encourage you to listen to that. Fourth, the gospel is dynamite because it gives us the assurance that God is always for us. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says this, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us? And when Paul says, if God is for us, he's not actually asking a question. He's saying, God is for us. Since God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer to that? The answer is nothing, nothing. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The gospel means that even when our circumstances are challenging, even when we're suffering, even when we sin, yes, maybe even especially when we sin, God is for us. Now, I'm not saying that God is for our sin. He's never for our sin. But God is for us when we sin. Psalm 56, nine says this, this I know that God is for me. Do you know that today, brothers and sisters? Do you know that God is for you? Do you believe that God is for you? Even all your, your challenges, all your struggles, all your suffering, even in your mistakes and your foolishness, and and the way that things have gone bad for you, do you know that God is for you? I can tell you that you can know for sure that God is for you. How can I say that? I can say it because of the gospel, God has made you right with him. You're right with God, and because you're right with God, you, you can know that he is always gonna be right with and for and to you. And you're not right with him because of who you are or what you do or what you don't do, You're right with him because he's declared you to be so through Jesus. And if you'll remind yourself of this reality, if you will preach the gospel to yourself day in and day out, it will give you the assurance that God is always for you. And do you know what that will produce in your life? It will produce joy and hope and love and peace. Let me tell you how I know this is true. I know this is true because this is what the gospel is currently doing in my life. Something I've always struggled with, this goes all the way back to my childhood, is believing that God is for me only when I'm doing what I should. 
You follow along with me? Just believing God's with me as long as I'm obeying. But the moment I stop obeying, God's gonna be against me. And so here's what I would do, even as, as a kid. Anytime uh, I would sin, I would make sure that I confessed that sin. I'd go through the words. I wasn't really remorseful. I was just saying the words. And I was saying the words because I was afraid that if I didn't confess my sin, that God was gonna get me. That God was, the bad things were gonna happen to me. And can I just say this? Some of you are living believing that God is gonna get you. Can I just say this to you? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God's not gonna get you because God got Jesus in your place 2,000 years ago. And because he got Jesus, he's no longer gonna get you. And you can know that no matter what happens in in your life, even no no matter what mistakes and sin that that you do, that God is still for you. Again, not for your sin. He probably will discipline you for your sin. He'll bring consequences. But that is, to, uh, that is for your good because he loves you and he wants to produce good things in your life. You see, what God does is he takes our sins and the mistakes and he turns them around and takes our brokennesses and makes beautiful things out of them. And so what I'm finding is even though I still, I still struggle with this on, on a day-by-day basis, like I struggle with thinking that if I'm not a good dad and if I'm not a good husband, and if not, I'm not a good pastor, which a lot of times I'm not, then oh boy, God is really angry with me. Can I just tell you? It's not true. It's a lie from the devil. How can I say that? I can say that because I have faith in Jesus and I've given my life to him. And because that is the case, I can know that what God said about Jesus' baptism, he also says about me every single second of every single day, regardless of what I do or don't do, I am his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And I just wanna tell you that, that this truth is, is just renewing in me more and more. The older I get and the longer I study the gospel, and especially what I'm going through in my life currently, and you know what it's doing? It's causing an explosion of joy and peace and hope, and most of all, love for the one who has shown so much love to me. And so why I'm so passionate about this is because I want you to experience the same thing that I'm experiencing, and you can experience it. How do you experience it? You experience it by leaning in to the gospel, by going to that well over and over again, and by praying and thinking and talking with others about how the truths of the gospel apply to every single area of your life. And as you do that, I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna produce joy and it's gonna produce hope and it's gonna produce peace and it's gonna produce love and it's gonna produce motivation to live for the Lord. So to just give you another example, when you truly understand the gospel, you can stop comparing yourself to other people. You know how we all do this? on a regular basis compares, well, they're, they're better at this or they do this or I wanna be this kind of wife. I wanna be this kind of mother or father. I wanna be this kind of businessman. I wanna be this kind of athlete or this student. The gospel enables us to stop doing that. Why? Because our rightness doesn't come through what we do. Our rightness comes through Jesus. So I'm right regardless of what I do. And so I don't need to compare myself. I don't need to judge other people. Why? Because my comparison is never gonna make me right. You're always gonna find somebody who's better than you. You're always gonna find somebody who's worse than you. And that is a dead end. The only end that gets us where we wanna go is the gospel. And we've gotta go back to it time and time and time again, which we're going to do for about 60 more Sundays. Okay, yeah. 
I may not, uh, I may have to retire after that, but uh, why, don't you bow, why don't you bow your heads and pray with me?